welcome again. Uh, my name is Nate. I am the student ministries pastor here at the Bridge. And uh, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. Last week we looked at the before and after of Stephen's speech, and this week we're looking at it, all 53 verses of it. Deep dive into each verse, each word will not be missed. I'm just kidding, that's not the case. But I want to start with the story. In 2002, well first I want to start with this, are there any, is anyone still a fan of, of baseball? Any baseball fans? That's kind of offensive right off the bat, any baseball fans? Okay, there's a few of you here. I'm not the biggest baseball fan, but I find, I, I'm a guy, I, I love sports. And so, you know, last time I was up here, I just shared, I overshared about grocery stores and my experience shopping recently. I decided to veer away from that and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna play the hits. Craig starts with, with basketball, I'm gonna start with a story about baseball. In 2002, the Oakland Athletics were going into the Major League Baseball regular season with kind of average expectations. In the offseason, they'd lost three of their best players to other teams around them. They were really good players, and other teams were like, we want them, so we're just going to take them from you. Well, not quite. They signed them. And, but they, the A's then were stuck. They had to replace these players. And so they replaced them with a few less than average players. Kind of run-of-the-mill guys, some bench warmers, some has-been, some old vets. Kind of players who wouldn't turn the heads of most. They weren't going to catch the headline on ESPN at the time. The payroll of the A's, or the, the athletics, was very low compared to other teams around them. But they didn't care. The manager and other staff had an idea. They were going to use this thing called analytics. Analytics is basically the usage of advanced stats. You guys are like, where are you going with this? The idea was advanced stance could give them kind of an inside scoop on how certain players were going to perform in certain situations. And so while other teams were looking for the player that hit the most home runs, the most hits, was the fastest in all situations, who could throw a pitch the fastest, the Oakland Athletics were like, who can perform a task in the right situation for the right moment? And so this team that they had gathered together was just that, kind of some players who could get the job done. And it worked out. They ended up going on to win more games than any other team did, than they did the year before. But it began a debate in professional sports. Is this allowed? The game became all of a sudden quite boring because players, there was all of these, basically not exciting players were all of a sudden starting to outperform these other players and the A's were just full of these players. It was like, is this, is this allowed? Can we use numbers to change the game like this? And so for most people, most managers at the time, there was a way of doing things before, and it was always done like this. And all of a the sudden, there was this new way of doing things, and there was pushback. There was this system in place, and the Oakland Athletics were like, you know what, no, we're actually gonna change this. There's actually a way to win, and we're gonna try something different. It flipped the game on its head, which, I, I'm not a baseball fan, I'm like, that's probably the most exciting thing that could happen in a baseball game. But it flipped the game completely. It changed the sport and the trajectory of the sport forever. And in all major sports, people started to use these things, advanced stats, to figure out how to win more games. And so today, I want to have that story in the back of our mind. Think about how there was an old way of doing things. Then all of a sudden, there was this, this new way. And the people who used to control the old way were starting to have a problem with it. 
Like, how can we possibly change what's never been broken before? And so today's Stephen's speech is similar to that. There was a way of doing things, and now Stephen comes in and revolutionizes the Christian faith forever. He changes it. But he doesn't necessarily change it himself. He's just catching on to what God is doing in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning, that we can come together and we can, we can worship, that we can, uh, yeah, hear your word. God, I'm thankful that your word is powerful, that it speaks to us. And so this morning, as I, as I continue uh, in, this, in, your, in your word, God, that you would speak through me, that you would be softening our hearts, that you would be uh, guiding me, guiding us this morning that you would do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine in this time. Praise things in your name. Amen. So the important question to ask when we're looking at, the, at the Stephen's speech in Acts 7 is, like, what could Stephen have possibly said that would lead to him being killed? Because we looked at it last week, where Craig looked at his character, where we know what, who was Stephen, and we looked at the after, Whatever he said for 53 verses was so controversial that it got him killed. So what did he say? But for us, we first have to look at who, the context around it. And a big, a big thing for the Jewish leaders at the time was that they were kind of stuck in an old way of thinking. They were seeing this Jesus movement as a threat to their old ways of doing things. On top of that, they were seeing that it went against what they thought was the scriptures themselves. Here's what I mean. For the Jewish leaders, the three main pillars of their faith that they felt were untouchable to the Jewish faith was the temple, the law, and the land. Nice. That worked. I didn't give them any like, heads up of what I'm going to be, well, they know what I'm going to be saying, but I was like, I hope, they, hope they're following those were the three main pillars of the Jewish faith. The temple, the law, and the land. To them, these three things were the key for their religion to go forward. They didn't want them to be shaken or removed. You see, like a pillar, a pillar is the foundation of something. These pillars were there so that their faith, or what they thought their faith was going to be, would be solid. And so for any of these three things to be, to be like shaken or moved, was for their faith and their control of this faith to be moved as well. Quickly on each one. For example, the temple. It was vital to them that worship in the presence of God resided in a certain place of worship. That was the core. A lot of ink is, is spilled in the Old Testament on the temple. How it was to be made, what was to happen there, who was to be in control of this temple. But the Old Testament scriptures also pointed and points to God's presence being greater than just one dwelling place. So the temple was a huge pillar for them. And we're going to see today that Stephen is going to be talking about that. We also have the land. For the Jewish people, a geographical location was crucial to what they believed. Think about the Old Testament story. God chooses a people, a people group, to be a blessing and to inherit a land. 
That's what the first five books of the Bible are. It's this movement towards this place that God has given them to go and inherit and be a blessing. It is out of this place that they will go and image God to the world. And lastly, the law. If you're familiar with the Gospels, there are these religious leaders throughout it. And they created more and more laws around the law that God had given in the Old Testament. And it became, almost, it became oppressive to the people. It burdened them. And the sacrifice, which was once to see this physical act of forgiveness, actually became dead ritual. So all of these things ended up just becoming the most important thing. No longer were they to point them to God themselves. All of these three things were to be protected. So... With all that said, we're going to read Acts, or Acts 7, verses 1 to 53, in like three chunks. And we're going to, kind of, we're going to read it, give a little bit of insight into, into following these three things, and then we're going to just keep moving through it, because it it's, it's a good, solid uh, piece of scripture. And so the speech itself, we'll read it in increments. It's going to be up there. That's smaller than I thought. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's small. I'm my apologies. That's okay. It would have been like 19 slides if I would have been like size 50 font. That's okay. All right. Verses, we'll start in verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and sailed in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will, pursue, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, and he rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him, Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph, went, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had, had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. 
He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. What a, what a passage. Not going to lie, the first 25 times I read this passage, I was like, what, what, is, what, what is Stephen trying to get at? But there are themes throughout this passage that are going on. This section of the speech is focused on the retelling of the patriarchs. These are, these are the, the, the foundational people in God's movement. And something I notice, and I hope you notice it too, is that Stephen is specifically pointing out, or he's highlighting the areas where God works through and speaks to his people. And so Stephen is pointing to these moments that from the beginning of Israel's history, God was not confined to a geographical location. Remember that one of the pillars is this idea of land, that there's a certain land that we are going to dwell in as Israelites. And through this speech, uh, Stephen is pointing out these little moments of like, he's, telling the, he's retelling the story of Israel in a way that's pointing to God being outside of what they think God is to act like. In verse two to three, God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia, outside of Israel. Verse four, he then spoke to Abraham again in Haran, And then in verses 9 to 16, he spends all this time retelling how God worked and moved through the time in Egypt. Why is this important? Stephen is highlighting that these pillars that they have built their faith on were never supposed to actually replace the presence of God. The pillars that they built their faith on were never supposed to replace the presence of God. He's saying, don't you guys get it? that the same God you worship doesn't actually play by your rules. You think that God's supposed to work in this way, but from the very beginning, in these scriptures that you you hold to so highly, you've missed the fact that God works outside of the ways you could ever imagine. These Jewish leaders were so focused on it being a certain way that they missed out on the fact that God had been moving for a long time in ways that they weren't even noticing. They weren't paying attention. And so this first section talks a lot about God's presence outside of the land and their expectations for it. Let's keep going. Verses 20 to 43. At the same time, at the time, wow, can't speak. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the, Egyptians yester- the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me for your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol to form in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch, Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, Rephan, the, ideal, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." So that's the next section. Again, there's a lot in there, but the section I wanna focus on is verses 37 to 42. Stephen is here speaking to the fickleness of their hearts during the time in the desert. You can actually keep up the second slide just so we can see the the passage. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Israel, they are a nation that is taken out of slavery and for 40 years, God's presence led them in the wilderness. In the book of Exodus, God's presence is described as a pillar of fire and a cloud to lead them. Stephen is pointing out that Moses was appointed leader by God to lead the people, and yet they didn't listen to him. The Israelites had the presence of God, but what does does Stephen say? They turned away. So they had God's presence with them in in the wilderness, God had said, like, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to give you my presence. And so as you journey through this time, you're going to have me with you. I'm going to appear before you. And so Stephen here is, what is he trying to say? That this is happening again. In the wilderness, you had God himself and you didn't want him. He gave you a leader to lead you, to pass on the law, and to even him, you didn't want to listen And here you had the Messiah, and you still have a chance to be a part of this movement, and yet they won't listen. You missed it. Your hearts are hard, and you can't seem to grasp the idea that the God's presence is bigger than what you imagined. You see, the posture of the Israelites' heart in the wilderness is being exposed here, and the Jewish leaders themselves are being exposed as well. These religious religious leaders were the gatekeepers of the Jewish faith. And they're being told that the very thing that they see as the pillars of their faith, in this case, the law, is something that you haven't embraced. 
These things, again, these three pillars are supposed to lead you and guide you and push you towards God's presence, but their hearts were hard and they completely misunderstood what God was trying to do in the Old Testament. And verses 44, and then we're gonna, we're gonna do a zoom out and trace what's actually, what's actually going on, big picture. So verses 44 to 53. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. Then they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And so this section is speaking to that third pillar, the idea of the temple and the location, once again, of God's presence. And remember what I said earlier, that the temple, for them, was seen as the dwelling place of God. But Stephen here is pointing out something. God's presence wasn't tied down to a specific location. In the, in the desert itself, God's presence was in the tent of witness. That there wasn't just this, we'll experience God later, it was that God's presence was always with them. And this continued, this was passed on from, from generation to generation. But his point becomes quite punchy in verses 48 to 50, that God's presence cannot be restricted to the places made by human hands. You see, the scriptures pointed to a time when God's presence would fill the earth and not just one place. God's plan was always to go bigger, to expand. Expansion was always in God's God's vision. So the charge against Stephen was for the idea of the temple itself. That's why we're in this situation. If people once had to go to the temple to sacrifice for their sins, this system was now flipped because they had Jesus. They had the forgiveness of sins in Christ through him. And then Jesus also gave them the Holy Spirit. So they had now had God's presence dwelling inside of them. And so while the temple was made for a place of sacrifice and a place for God's presence, Jesus now fulfills these two things. Because once again, God was not restricted in this way. What happened at the temple when Jesus died on the cross? Back at the temple, the curtain, the very thing that kept the people from the, the holiness, the holy presence of God, was torn in half where God's presence was now for all, in all situations. And so you can, the, the Old Testament points to this moment itself. And Stephen is pointing this out, like, again, you guys, you guys missed this one. And he concludes this section by, I feel like he just throws one last, like, little grenade at the end. He just calls them uncircumcised and stiff-necked, just for, just for good measure. Two classic insults that I use so common. 
always calling my friends stiff-necked and uncircumcised. I don't. But for the leaders to hear these words would have immediately brought them back to the memories of their ancestors, being told of their un unwillingness to be obedient to God. And of course, the circumcision referenced to how they hadn't listened. The Jewish people circumcised their boys, and it was this physical act of, like, we are being obedient to you. And while he's saying, like, sure, like, you, you've done the physical markings to show that you're a part of what's going on, but your heart, the thing that actually matters, the thing that I actually want, isn't. That you actually aren't being obedient to me. All that to say, let's zoom out for, like, big picture, all 53 verses, what is really going on? Why was Luke so inspired to write down this entire speech, the longest speech we get in the book of Acts? What is really going on here and what killed Stephen? And so the Jewish leaders are asking Stephen, are you changing this system that we have set up? And they're not asking this in a way of like, we're totally cool with change. Like, do you want to change this? Like, are you cool? Because we're totally, we're totally game if you want to, you know, just flip this all upside down. They're quite angry, clearly. The next thing they do is they, like, they kill him. But the temple is there for a purpose, they think. And the law is also given for a purpose. All of these things are in place, and they're like, you can't change these things. But again, the kicker is that God's presence supersedes that of just Israel. That it's going, it's getting bigger. And it's not just for the Israelite people. It's for everyone. It's why we're here today. This isn't just going to stay in Jerusalem. It was going to be a global movement. Notice that throughout, Stephen points to many moments where God speaks to those outside of Israel. We have the tent in the wilderness. We have the burning bush. We have Mount Sinai. And while all of these were eventually for the nation of Israel to be, to be confirmed, they were just there for, to, to get to the place where they can be a blessing and they can go and be a blessing to other nations. And the fact, that, the fact that the temple now served a new purpose disturbed them. And not only that, but this speech itself points to this religion becoming bigger than what they had anticipated. Potentially, this is for more than just these Jewish leaders. And that was going to stir up some controversies. In the book of Acts, chapter 7 is a bit of a, a linchpin in the movement of, of the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, the church is, becoming, is getting like stronger in a way of like there's numbers growing, they're becoming a community of believers, the Holy Spirit is just empowering them to go, and here we kind of have the dam breaking. The gospel is going to go out to all of the nations, and Stephen recognizes this. He recognizes that for the incoming, for example, the Samaritans, the gospel, to hear the gospel he had to address this issue of the temple as the only place for worship. You see, Stephen wasn't against it. He wasn't against the temple. He was against the fact that this was going to be a holdup for the new incoming believers. Here's why. A little history on the Samaritan people. Because you hear, them, you hear about them in uh, the gospel and the story of Jesus, of all of his interactions with Samaritans. But this is why the temple for the Samaritans was actually such a holdup. At the time, after the time of King Solomon, Israel was split into two. We have the northern region, which is called Israel, and the southern region, which is Judah. The capital of the northern region was Samaria. And in 721 BC, the neighboring Assyrians captured Samaria 
And a part of this capture was that they began to intermingle and intermarry. And so these people in the north that were like, like pure like Jewish people were all of a sudden starting to intermarry with these Assyrians. And the other Jewish people began to look down on them because of this. And so that, which sounds kind of hardcore, this idea of like pure-blooded Jewish people, but at this time, that was what was important to the Jewish people. There was laws put into place that they were to be a set apart. And so years later, the time came to, for the temple to be rebuilt. And so in the north, they were like, these, these Samaritans were like, Let's, we can totally help. And they got denied. They're like, you got, you're not going to be a part of this. And so they decided to build their own temple. So the northern region had its own temple, and the southern re- region had its own temple. And then eventually, both temples are, are destroyed. And so this is a big conversation for the Samaritan people, is this idea of where is the temple? If this is the presence of God, and we're a part of this, where are we going to experience worship? If you're familiar with John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus meets a woman at the well. She has a conversation, he has a conversation with her, and in the middle of that conversation, she kind of like, he's like pointing out like, hey, you've had a lot of husbands, and she's like, let's stop, let's stop talking about that. Like, where am I, where is like the true place of worship? She cuts in because to her, that's a pressing thing. She's like, if I want to experience the presence of God, where is this? And so this becomes a real thing for the Samaritan people. So Stephen had all of this information, I'm sure, in the back of his head, because he sees where the gospel is going. It's going, to, it's going to penetrate the hearts of people who aren't just of Jewish faith. It's going, to, it's going to reach the Samaritans, and it's going to go farther and farther and farther. In the beginning of Acts, it has this thing that the gospel is going to go and like spread like way farther than they could ever imagine. And so he sees where this movement is going. He knows that the temple is going to be a holdup. And so he addresses it here. And the leaders, from the beginning, they don't miss what he says here, but they miss the heart behind the message. They didn't realize that all of these systems that were in place from the Old Testament weren't the fruit itself. The fruit itself was God's presence. That these pillars that they built their, their religion on were to point to God's presence and to his love and to his grace. And so thinking about us, there's a lot of times in the, when, I, when I read a passage like this, I'm like, I was like, Craig, Craig, I don't, I, is it okay if we just, we'll just stop here? Like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what the application is. But there's a lot in here realizing about the idolatry that these Jewish leaders had in their own heart. For the Jewish leaders, the focus was keeping the order that they had created. They had created a way of doing things and these temp- the temple and the law became untouchable and of so much importance, but they'd forgotten that in the midst of protecting those things, that they forgot what this actually pointed to. They became idols. The very things that were supposed to lead to God's presence became idols in their own heart. It can, become, it, it can sound kind of weird to think of something that's so foundational in the Old Testament to be an idol, but that's what it replaced. It replaced the presence of God. Tim Keller def- defines an idol as this. He says, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything to, you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I'll have value then I'll feel significant and secure. 
It's interesting that for the religious leaders, something so simple or something so like foundational that God had put in place to lead them to his presence became the idol itself. And thinking about a place like North Shore, where are there things in our life that God has given us that are supposed to point us to him that have gone in the way that have become the thing that we are going to worship? I think of creation. I can feel this in my own heart at times. But creation is created by God, described by God in Genesis as good, over and over and over. As God creates, he says that what he has created is good. In Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 66, All of the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And so the Bible speaks of the, the order of this as well. Creation was not the thing to be worshipped. Creation was the place where humans were to cultivate, create, and live in so that they can image God to the world. Creation was there to say, look at how beautiful and majestic and creative our God is. Isn't he a God worth worshiping? It was never the thing to be worshiped in and of itself. And yet, we seem to have muddled this up at times. You hear, of, you hear the language of, of the outdoors being, being a, your replacement of heaven, almost a haven, a place where you go to, to just... And it's not to be like, I want to spend time with God in this. It's that this, this replaces what church is. This replaces what religion is. This becomes your new God, is, is this act of just like creation itself. Or more idols. Just more idols. Another one. I'm just kidding. We're like six more coming. No, I don't. But the idea of, for us in a place like this, is like marriage or family. It's kind of a weird one because those are really good things. Family is a great thing. Being married is a, is a great gift from God. But again, and it's something built into the fabric of humanity by God to glorify him. Yet that is not always the case. Think about the language that can sometimes surround Christian community around marriage. I went to a Bible college. This is real. I remember like my second, year, my second week of uh, being at Columbia Bible College and I was sitting at a table with these like new friends and we we're just chatting and we're all like first years. And there's a group of guys, I'm sure guys talk about this too. The example is that a group of girls were chatting and one of the girls is like, this is so funny. She's like, I just like, I just wish he would like notice me because I feel like he could like totally like fulfill all of my dreams and desires and like fulfill me. But he just like won't sit next to me in class. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, if he doesn't have the maturity at this point in your life to like notice you, I feel like he's probably not going to fulfill you. But it was like kind of this crazy language about like, like if only I'm married, I can have this like fulfillment. Like, man, life is going to be so good once I get to this place. And it's kind of laughable, especially in that situation where you're like, okay, like she'll grow out of it or he'll grow out of it or whatever. But it can become a real thing. Our society and even the church can sometimes view marriage as the end goal. That's like, that is the gift. Like, once you're there, like, this is the fulfillment. And you realize that that's not necessarily the case. The goal is always Jesus. These things are always to point us to the presence of God. These things are always meant to refine us and make us into image bearers. That as we, as we grow in relationship to your spouse, or as, you, as you're in singleness and you embrace whatever it is that God has given you, these things are to, are to like sanctify and create in us a fresh new heart so that we can image God to the world. 
but oftentimes we get so focused on the first thing that God gives us that we don't keep our eyes on the next thing, which is the thing, which is God himself. I think of more things. I think of like, thinking this morning of like how often our jobs can become that idol of like, oh man, if I only get that one thing. But we know these stories. We know these stories of like the thing that we long for the most is oftentimes the thing that God's giving us to, to make us more into his own image. That these, these things are gifts that God has given, but they aren't the end goal themselves. Just like the Jewish leaders, God had given a way of doing things for a long time. But now things were changing, and these things were to point to the presence of God, that their heart would be soft and full of grace to receive God's presence, and they'd missed it. And so there's so many things in our, in our life today that can quickly and often become the center of our life. They can become the thing that replaces God's presence itself. And so to close, I invite you this week to think about the order of things in your own life. These things are to bring... If they're good things, they're things that are put in place to glorify him. They're to point us to his presence. They're to refine us. They're to bring us to a deeper relationship with him. Because the beautiful thing is that when we receive Jesus, when we begin to model him, we lose a part of this ourself that's like not of God. There's parts of us that need to, need to be gone, need to be sanctified, old sin patterns, all of these things, and God is gonna do a work in us. But God also leaves behind and like creates in us passions and desires. Think of these things, like these are, these are gifts from God that God has given us. And as we begin to move Jesus to the center of our lives, we begin that all of these gifts that God has given us are ways to point us to, to him. And so as you think this week, think about all of the ways that we can glorify God through the gifts that he has given us. We're called to make our life a living sacrifice for him. So in all of these areas, would we be, would we be moving towards him and realizing that these are gifts that point to the presence of God? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and that even in, even in texts like this, God, you are speaking to us and you are, you are refining us and you're refreshing us. And so God, this week as we, as we go about our lives, God, would we, would we see the things that you've given us and see them in light of who you are? Thinking about work, thinking about our families, thinking about all of these gifts that you have given to us and that they're there to, to sanctify us, to glorify you, so God, would we do all of these things to glorify you? Would, we, would our hearts become soft to you, to your gospel, as you continue to work in and through each of us so that we may be a blessing to those around us? We pray these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>